church family, will you take your copy of God's word and turn to Psalms 119. We'll be in verses 113 through 120. I know we had a couple of new families this morning with elementary age kids who are going to go to uh, kids' church. Now's the time. That's what they're doing in the back. And so if you would like your child to join them, they are free to stay in here with us. If you would like your child to join them, uh, they can do so now. Today is going to be our last sermon in this uh, series in Psalm 119, Lord willing. If we have a 2024 summer, we will return and do the final seven sections of Psalm 119 uh, next summer. So uh, next Sunday, we will begin, we will return to the New Testament and begin a series in 1 Corinthians that will take us um, pretty much the whole school year to do. There are some resources in the back. Uh, First, the ESV scripture journals, which many of you use to keep sermon notes all in one place. If you've never gotten one of those from us, uh, it has the text that I preach from on one side and note an empty page on the other. They are on the table at the back. And then you enjoyed the Christ-centered exposition commentary series so much that we gave you uh, for the Ecclesiastes series during my sabbatical that we thought we would just buy those in bulk to be able to give you the opportunity to purchase one uh, for cheaper than you could buy it yourself. So the ESV scripture journals uh, are $5, the Christ-centered exposition commentaries on 1 Corinthians, which are brand new, by the way, and they just came out this, uh, this summer Uh, or $10, which is less than you could buy it for on Amazon uh, yourself. They're on the back table. They'll also be in the Equip Center after this week. Uh, I'd love for you to pick up those resources as we study uh, the book of 1 Corinthians together, Lord willing, next Sunday. I invite you to now stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, starting at verse 113 of Psalm 119, reading this section down through verse 120. This is the word of the Lord. The psalmist says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers that is Nansman River Baptist Church. That we can love and encourage one another through singing and fellowship and the instruction of your word. Father, as we have already sang this morning, we need you. Just personally, I need you this morning. I need the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. I need the goodness of your word and its instruction in my life. And we, your church, need you. We need your help in understanding your word. We need your help in living in Christ's likeness. We need you, O God. 
Thank you, God, that you are present. When we gather, you are here amongst your people. Would you instruct us now in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This, our final sermon in part two of our series in Psalm 119, uh, ends with a discussion of the wicked. The sermon is entitled, The Word and the Wicked. Our main idea is that the good word tells us all we need to know about the wicked. You maybe didn't come to church this morning to hear a sermon on wickedness, but that is our topic. We are going to see what the word says, particularly what the word here in these eight verses instruct us about who the wicked are, what is our relationship to them, and what is their final judgment if they do not repent. By way of introduction, I actually want to address the second word in the first verse, because if I don't address it, I'm going to end up having to address it individually with some of you who will come to me afterwards and said, you used a word I don't like. The psalmist says, I hate. Christians are often maligned as being hateful when, well, in some kinds, because in our sin, we are hateful. But sometimes we are maligned as being hateful when that is not the true nature of our disposition towards people. We say as a church in one of our six core values that we will show God's love to all people at all time. What I'm going to say from God's word does not contradict that at all. It actually supports it. God loves humans, humanity as the crowning work of his creation and therefore we love humans, people, and we're called to show God's love to them. And yet here, if we are to agree with the psalmist, we should at least in some level practice not only Christian love, Jesus is abundantly clear. We should not just love those who love us, but we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We can express by the psalmist that we have some degree of hatred towards the wicked. You have probably heard the platitude, well, simply we love the sin and hate the sinner. This is a, a, a saying that nearly every Christian has heard and many often repeat, but it is sometimes unhelpful for us. Because it is not just the sin that God judges, but it is actually the sinner. You see, it is not the actions of sinners that will be under the wrath of God for eternity, separated from him in a real place called hell, but actual sinners, human beings, men and women, that God will righteously judge and separate from himself because of his holiness. So it is not that this sentiment to hate the sin and love the sinner is untrue. It's just that it's often unhelpful because we don't know how to separate those two things. And so very often we end up affirming sin in the life of a sinner. We end up affirming wickedness so that we don't seem hateful 
to them. We, we so often worry about are we coming across as hateful that not only do we love the sinner, but we end up affirming their sin. So at least in some ways, church, we need to identify with what the psalmist is saying and have righteous hate. We should hate the wickedness that is so prevalent in our world. We should hate it that it is embraced so readily by those who are living in darkness. We should hate the destructive path that millions upon millions of people are walking today. We should hate the enemy that has kept them blinded to the truth of the gospel, to the depravity of their souls. So yes, we as God's people show love to all people at all times, but part of showing this Christian love to people means that we do join in with the 150 occasions in the scripture where the people of God hate something. Sorry that we began so heavy this morning, but it, it, it's heavy to, to, to read this. As, as we were reading it together, these eight verses will weigh heavy on, uh, on us this morning as we think about our relationship with the wicked and what the world tells us about them. First, the double-minded nature of the wicked. Look at these two verses at the beginning of the section. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. There's a contrast here that the psalmist provides for us, a contrast between those who love and hope in God's word and those who do not. In, in verse 113, he says, I love your law. This is contrasting the love that the psalmist has for the word of God with the way that the wicked treat the word of God. To love the law is to cherish the divine instruction that God has given, revealed to his people. In verse 114, he says, I hope in your word. To hope in the word is to believe not only that it is true, but that the word of God is powerful, that it is life-changing, that it is life-giving, and that it is always good, even when we don't fully comprehend it. Some of the wicked are easily identifiable, and we will see that in later verses. But others are wicked not because of what they are necessarily doing on the outside, but they are wicked because of the way they think about God's word. They are wicked because they are double-minded. They do not love the law of God. They do not find hope in the law of God. They may give lip service to it. They are double-minded about it. I find it interesting to note that this is the only place, while the word hate is used 150 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament at least, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word double-minded, the word that is used here in the original language, only appears one time. It, it only shows up once. 
And in this instance, the psalmist says that he hates those who are double-minded, contrasting them as wicked with those who love and hope in God's word. So it, because it only appears one time in the Hebrew Old Testament, we, we have to ask the question, well, how can we understand the, the juxtaposition between those who love and hope in God's word and those who are double-minded about it. Where can we see that then in the text? Well, I think there's a couple of stories, fairly familiar stories, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, if you're familiar with scripture, these may be familiar to you. I wanna share both of them with you this morning from God's word in the Old Testament. The first is in Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua chapter 24, Joshua previously has taken over for Moses as the leader of God's people out of Egypt after wandering in the desert. Now they are going to enter the promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan and they're going to conquer the land that God has given them as a possession. And they have done so. That's the story of the book of Joshua. If you've never read it, that's the story is God's people coming into the land and conquering the land. By the time we get to Joshua 24, we're at the end of the story. The land has been conquered. Now the people need to settle the land. And Joshua gathers the people around him before they're going to go off and settle in their, in their city, settle in the places where they're where the tribes were given specific sets of land. And he says this to them, starting in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him, with, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us, our fathers, up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. And then in verse 23, Joshua gives them instructions. He says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. There before the people after conquering the land, before they spread out, Joshua says, you've got a choice to make. Are you going to be single-minded? Are you going to be double-minded? Choose you this day who you will serve. Will you serve the gods of Egypt or will you serve the one true God that has given you this land? If you fast forward about 450 years in Israeli history, they now have kings and because of squabbles amongst those kings and the sins of those kings, the kingdom divides into two parts, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom ruled by a wicked man named Ahab and his wife Jezebel leads the people to worship false gods. And God raises up from his people a prophet, the prophet Elijah. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, 
We read this, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, notice this, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long will you be double-minded, Elijah asks the people. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, that was the false god that uh, Ahab and Jezebel worshipped and were leading the people to worship, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, I'm not going to read it. It's a long story. But if you're familiar with this story, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal kind of to a, a duel. They both set up altars to their gods. And he says to the prophets of Baal, have your God call down fire. And he taunts them as they are unable to do so. And then as you get to the end of the day, Elijah prays to God and God brings fire down from heaven, consuming the altar that Elijah had built. And then in verse 39 of 1 Kings 18, the people respond. Now in verse 21, after he says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? The people don't have an answer, but now they do in verse 39. And when the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is two examples of times where the people of God were faced with double-mindedness. To kind of give some lip service to God but to walk in the ways of the world. And they were faced with a choice from their leader and their prophet, choose. You can't go on living like this. Choose. Will you serve God or will you serve the world? We are living in a time when many who claim the name of Christ are living double-minded lives. Entire churches, denominations, Christian movements are being built upon double-mindedness. They're not being built upon the sole truth of God's word, but they're being built upon a mixture of some things they like in God's word alongside of secularism and humanism and pluralism and syncretism. I've struggled this week if I was going to use this illustration, but... Here it goes. Several people over the last two weeks have sent me a sermon. People inside of our church and outside of our church asking my thoughts. I'm going to give the information that I feel like I can give. I'm going to be intentionally vague still. Because I don't talk about other churches from this platform other than to say, the ones that are doing great that we love and cherish as partners and we pray for. But a local church, a church that is very close proximity-wise to us, two weeks ago, one of their pastors preached a sermon entitled, Love is Love. And if you're paying attention, you don't need a description of what followed in that sermon. Just briefly, it was about 30 minutes of trying to correct thousands of years of Christian history on the way that we have approached marriage being between one man and one woman for life. And then about 10 minutes of telling his people, simply love like Jesus, that's all we're supposed to do and he'll work out the rest. As if God hasn't clearly spoken to us. This is happening all over our land. 
This is happening by people who claim the name of Christ, but they are double-minded about what God has not vaguely said is true. Okay, you need to understand something. And if this angers you, I pray that you'll go to Scripture and search out Scripture. Know this, God's not been vague about what marriage is. And God's not been vague about what true biblical sexuality is. God has been abundantly clear from the very beginning. And to move away from that because it seems loving is actually hatred. To not tell people of their sin is not to love them. It is to deny them the truth that we hold. So no, we're not tempted to worship the gods of Egypt and we're not tempted to worship the gods of Baal, but we are regularly drawn by our flesh to worship modern gods. Modern gods that say, believe the way the world believes, walk the way the world walks. And hear me, church, we are called to have a holy hatred for that. I'm not saying we're supposed to be hateful towards people. I'm not saying we're supposed to be violent towards people. But we can't affirm their sin that is leading them to hell. We can't affirm their wickedness that has separated them from God. We must plead with them. We must show them in love why it is we hate the wickedness that has embraced their life. And understand this. Wickedness has embraced the lives of so many. And the apostle Paul is clear on this, he kind of lays this out for us in Romans chapter one and Romans chapter two. So kind of a lot of verses, but I wanna read them for you. Starting in Romans one and verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Then if we skip to Romans chapter two and verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, without the the revelation of God in scripture about what is right and wrong, he says, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciousness also bears witness in their con Conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You say, okay, why, why read these things? Well, here's what Paul is arguing, that God has clearly revealed himself. And not only has God clearly revealed himself, but God has clearly written right and wrong on the hearts of all people. And so even without the law, they know right from wrong. 
and they still choose to disobey God who has revealed himself to them. So then all of the wicked are in one way or another double-minded because God has revealed himself to them and will hold them accountable, he says in Romans 2, for their disobedience to what he wrote on their hearts. He says in verse 15 of Romans 2, they have conflicting thoughts. You see, it's not just people that that name the name of Christ, but not his word who are double-minded. It is all who walk in wickedness. All who walk in wickedness are in one sense or another double-minded because God has revealed himself and they have chosen to go their own way. Number two, the discernment of the wise concerning the wicked. So what are the wise to do in a wicked world? How are we to not only think about them as we see in the previous two verses, but how are we kind of to interact with them? Well, we see who they are more fully in these verses as we continue this comparison between the psalmist's love and desire for the Lord and his word contrasted with the rejection of the wicked's, the wicked in their relationship with God and his word. In verse 115, they fail to trust the commands of God. In verse 116, they fail to trust in the promise of God. And in verse 117, they fail to trust ultimately in the salvation of God. Listen to these verses. He says, depart from me, you evildoers. Now, so that's giving us our, the position that we're supposed to think about with the wicked. I'm gonna come back to it. That I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. So the wicked fail to trust God in, their, in his commandments and his promises and his salvation. We, the people of God, should trust God. And so because of this, we must be on guard for how their failures can become our own. This is why the psalmist says, depart from me, you evildoer, that I may keep the commandments of my God. The psalmist is not telling us, and the totality of scripture is not telling us, to become reclusive in our community. The, the, the instructions of scripture should not lead us to make the same decisions that, that, for instance, the Amish have made. To go out of the world, to build ourselves a protected community, and to, for most regards, have no connection with the wicked of the world. That's not what Scripture instructs us, and that's not what Scripture demonstrates for us. Christians are called to be a city on a hill. We're called to be salt, and we're called to be light. We are called to live our Christian lives in the midst of a wicked world. Even though the world is rebelling against God, we are called to follow him regardless of what is happening around us. But that doesn't mean that we let our guard down. This is where so many Christians blur this line. They end up letting their guard down and instead of influencing the wicked, the other becomes true. The wicked influence the Christian. So we, we have to 
we have to not only think about who the wicked are, but what is our disposition towards them? What is our relationship with them? And when we begin to see that wicked people are influencing us in our lives, not only does that call us to a moment of repentance and confession to the Lord, but it should call us to evaluate how we are allowing wickedness to infiltrate and guide us. I want us to go to another psalm. We're going to end up considering all of Psalm 1, the first half here and the second half in a minute. Because Psalm 1 teaches us about the righteous and the wicked. But Psalm 1 is messianic in nature, meaning that it presents a perfect version of something. And when the, the scriptures present a perfect version of something, then that perfection is personified in the person of Jesus. So as Christians, we read the Old Testament looking back through the person and work of Christ. And when we read Psalm 1, we should certainly read it through the person and work of Christ, realizing that he is the one who did this perfectly. Listen to the first three verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Do you notice the comparison between the one who is walking with the wicked and the one who is standing firm on the word of God? Ultimately, Jesus is this blessed man. He is the one who practiced perfect wisdom concerning the wicked. It is his word that gives us all that we need to walk in that same wisdom. So while Psalm 1 is about Jesus, Psalm 1 is also about how we can walk like Jesus. And how did Jesus walk? Perfectly. He walked perfectly, not in the counsel of the wicked, not in the way of sinners, not in the seat of scoffers, but he walked perfectly in the delight of the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night like a tree planted by streams of water, firmly fixed in the word. So Psalm 1 helps us with our understanding of Psalm 119, first by pointing us to the one who did this perfectly, pointing us to Jesus, that our rest is in Jesus because he has done this perfectly for us. But it is also a challenge to us that we would evaluate our lives and ask, am I allowing the wicked to give counsel in my life? Am I allowing sinners to talk about how I walk and, and what I do? Or am I grounded, firmly fixed in the word of God? Those truly are the options before us, church. And we must consider those options in our lives and say, if we are going to truly be like Jesus, we can't be like the double-minded wicked who say one thing and do another. We must strive with every fiber of our being to walk like Jesus walked. And how did Jesus walk in relation to the wicked? He was around wicked people all the time. I mean, in about every other page of the Gospels, Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. I mean, this is who Jesus spent a lot of his time with, but 
the influence flowed one direction. You see, his feet were so firmly fixed in the word of God that he was able to love them by saying, go and sin no more. He was able to be around them without allowing their wicked influence into his life. And this is something we grow in. So for a season of time, hear me, Christian, because there are times that people will come, they'll be caught in sin, and they'll want help, they'll want pastoral help, we'll sit down and talk about it, and I'll say, you know, the first thing you need to do is cut off these relationships, these people that you're doing this with. And they come right back, and they're like, yeah, but I'm, I'm the only Christian influence they have. Well, listen, if you're sinning right alongside of them, you're not a Christian influence. They're a wicked influence in you. So get your, fir- your feet firmly fixed in the word of God. Walk in Christ and then we can begin to be a Christ-like influence, a godly influence in the lives of people. We're not told to shun completely, but we do need to agree with the psalmist here. If the evildoer is drawing us into his wickedness, we need to say, depart from me. That is godly discernment according to his word in our lives. Knowing when to say, I am far too tempted to be in this. I am far too tempted to allow this to be present in my life. I need to reject this influence and firmly fix my feet in the word of God. Number three, the destruction of the wicked. Look at these last three verses. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. These last three verses are very clear about the ultimate destination of the wicked for all who do not turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Their way leads to destruction. They are compared here to dross. Do you know what that word means? I don't. Oh, I do now, but I didn't five days ago. I I had no idea. I do know that there are some people here that work at the shipyard who are welders, and dross is a welding word. Uh, I learned that this week as I was researching the word. Its most common use, though, is in the purification of metals. It's similar to slag, all right? So I knew the word slag because I watch gold shows. My wife hates them. But I watch people gold mining on TV. I think it's fascinating. I, I, can't, I, I would love to go up and do like drive a big bulldozer and put dirt in a machine and out comes gold. I just, there's something fascinating about that for me. And when they purify that gold, I couldn't do this to save my life, by the way, right? It's like my manly man dream, okay? And, but then they, they take that gold and they put it, you know, in a furnace, they heat it up and, and slag rises to the top. Well, slag is the, the impurities that are liquid, If impurities rise to the top that are a solid, it's known as dross. They're basically the same thing. One's just liquid, one's solid. But dross and slag are no good. They're worthless. And that's why he says in verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. When when the impurities in a purifying metal process rise to the top, the people doing the purifying just discard them. And that's what it's going to be like for the wicked. Their end is ultimately destruction. Go back to Psalm chapter one. It says the wicked, starting verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is that part of the wheat that we can't eat. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the 
congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will, notice this, perish. This is why the psalmist says, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. This is not the psalmist, that's in verse 120. He's not expressing some kind of unhealthy fear. He's talking about a healthy fear of the Lord, recognizing that the judgment of the Lord against the wicked is severe. That they, the wicked, will perish. Even the wicked, who so very often look like the righteous. I want to make that argument clear to us through a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Matthew's in a section, I believe, of seven parables that all speak about one way or another about the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells this parable starting verse 24. He put another parable before them, Matthew says, saying, this is Jesus, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sows good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The weed that is being described here in Jesus' parable that would have been incredibly familiar to the agrarian culture in which Jesus was ministering in first century Palestine was this. It's a weed called darnel. This weed mimicked wheat. It looked like wheat. It grew to the same height as wheat, but it had roots that would intertwine themselves with the, the wheat root. And so to pull up the dross would be to pull up the wheat And so the harvester, the owner of the land says, just let them all grow. And in the end, the end that represents the judgment of God, the reaping that represents the separation of sheep from goats, of righteous from wicked, of from wheats and weed. In the end, even some that looked like wheat will ultimately end up in destruction and judgment. This is why we are so clear about the truth that our goal is not to correct the actions of people because correcting the actions of people has never saved a single soul. Our goal is to clearly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, him dying in our place, buried and resurrected by the power of the Father, securing for us a great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. If you're coming here today, if you're gathered in this place because you think by doing so, you can somehow gain righteousness before God, that that this is some kind of check mark for you on God's tally list of the good things that you have done, know this, you will ultimately fail. You'll fail to offset your sin. I would fail to offset mine. Every human would fail to offset their sin apart from the good work of Jesus and the free offer of the gospel. You see, you don't have to be 
part of the wicked whose way is destruction. Through the gospel of Jesus, you can put your faith in him and you can go by the power of God from being a weed to being wheat. Oh, the good news of the gospel. That that which was once wicked has been made righteous. So what? We, the people of God, must reject the ways of the wicked and warn them of God's judgment. As we love them (laughs) and hate their path, we don't do so from afar. We don't do so so fully separated from them that they have no idea what we believe. We do so with a heart that desires to see them saved and to warn them of the path of the wicked and the coming judgment of God. We've we've kind of walked through some Israelite history today. Let's do it one more time in closing. So Joshua was about 1300 BC. Uh, Elijah would have been about 450 years after that, about 850 BC. So about 300 years later, the northern kingdom has already been conquered by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, has God has pronounced his judgment on them, on Judah and Jerusalem particularly. And they are holding on by a thread. The judgment is coming. And God raises up a, a um, prophet during that day named Ezekiel. And this is a commission that actually twice in both Ezekiel 3 and in Ezekiel 33, God says nearly the same words to Ezekiel. He says this to him. So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, oh, wicked one, you shall surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood, but, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now, church, we're not Ezekiel, okay? This was a commissioning of Ezekiel, but God's commissioning of Ezekiel tells us something about the people of God and about the people of God's responsibility to the wicked, that we have a message to deliver. And that is that because of their sin, they will surely die. And that death goes far beyond just physical death. That death is spiritual death. That death is eternal judgment in a real place called hell. And if you're here today, you've never put your faith in Jesus, consider this our, not just mine, but our warning to you outside of Jesus, you have no hope. And hear me, church. This is the warning that we have been called to proclaim to the wicked, regardless if they think us hateful, regardless if they condemn us as judgmental, which by the way, are two of the greatest sins our secular world identifies now. To be hateful and judgmental is anathema to our secular world, and yet we are willing to risk that. Hear me, world. Call us what you will. The judgment of God is real. And church, we proclaim the love of God and the good news of Jesus only when we are clear 
that to be outside of the love of God and to not believe the good news of Jesus is to stand in God's judgment for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your people who were once wicked that you have made righteous. We recognize, God, that we did not do this on our own, that we weren't crafty enough or cunning enough or smart enough or wise enough or good enough to do it. But you, by the power of Jesus, have done that for us, in us, and through us, taking us from being what we once were to what we are now. And because you have done that in us, you have now made us ambassadors for Christ and his gospel and his kingdom in this world. So let us not shrink back from declaring the good news of Jesus. Let us not hide behind false platitudes. Let us not consider our own safety even, but let us proclaim Christ and him crucified so that the wicked could be made righteous. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you hear this today and you say, I, I, I need to do, I need to go from wicked to righteous. A couple of our pastors, I'll be one of them, we'll, we'll be in the lobby. Come and find us after we're, we're done today. Let us share with you how you can walk with Jesus. You can put your faith in him. Church family, they're, they're, the application for us though is, how am, what is my relationship with the wicked? Am I allowing them to influence me or am I warning them of the judgment? So as we sing together, let that dwell in your minds. Would you stand with us as we respond?